Well, we're going to start our verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's appropriate that we ask for the Father's blessing, and we ask also for the blessing of the Lord Jesus, because he's there in heaven watching us, listening to our words and our thoughts, and maybe smiling at times how we, we, we got the wrong end of the stick, or we, uh, we misimagined, or whatever. We need to ask for, for the blessing of the Father and Son. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come to you to ask for your special blessing as we seek to, to know Christ and to make him known. We pray, Heavenly Father, for the opening of our eyes to understand your Son as he's revealed here in the Gospel of Matthew. And Lord Jesus, we ask also for your blessing, knowing that you wish to know us and that you want, to, want us to know you. And we do pray for your forgiveness in advance for anything that we think or say or expound in the wrong way. Lord, we seek for you, and we pray therefore that you will open our eyes to perceive you as you really are. Please, Father, and please, Lord Jesus, please help us in our endeavour. Amen. This then is going to be a verse-by-verse a, a -verse study of, of Matthew, but of course, you start studying the Gospels, you start at Matthew 1, so you start with the genealogies. And so uh, I can't say that this session we're going to actually be going through every single one of those names and the genealogies. But before we get into all that, I would just like to, to draw your attention to what's written in many Bibles before you get to Matthew 1, verse 1. And it's that you read that this is the Gospel according to Matthew. And I would like to just reflect on the nature of the Gospel records. These records have a, a, a genre, we can say, that is, uh, is unknown. That there's no other um, group of uh, writers that, that are writing in, in quite this way. How did they originate? Well, I suggest that the Gospels originated in that Matthew, after the resurrection of the Lord, was going around teaching people, telling people what happened, and he started at the beginning and went through to the end. And he said this so many times that as time went by and it became apparent that the Lord was not coming back immediately, quite naturally, these Gospels, these accounts of the Gospel, were written down under inspiration. And that's what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of course they're slightly different, not contradictory to each other, but different to each other, simply because they are written by, or were spoken originally by, different preachers in slightly different contexts. So Matthew's Gospel is aimed, it seems, at Jewish people. That's understandable. There he was going around uh, talking to Jewish people in Palestine, and this was the account that he gave. Luke is a bit more, it seems, uh, geared towards Gentiles, because it seems that his ministry, his teaching of the Gospel, was more connected with, uh, with Gentiles. Now, when you come to the Gospel of John, of course, it's somewhat different, and it seems that he's writing with his eye on various doctrinal problems that had arisen in the first century. And again, the, the message that he's got is not contradictory to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's simply a bit different, uh, because he's teaching a different audience, just as it might be with us that we may preach the gospel in, in one form to one group of people, and you have the same gospel with a slightly different emphasis to, to another. Now, there was a, a tradition that before baptism in the first century, the gospel of Mark had to be memorized. 
And the Gospels are all written in a way that encourages memorization. And here in chapter 1, the genealogies, it's clear that you don't have every single person uh, listed here um, from Abraham through to, to Jesus. There are three groups of 14, making 42. And you wonder why that is. And there are various suggestions as to why that might be. But one simple answer is that the Gospels are designed for memorization. And splitting up the, the material into three groups of 14 maybe is the simplest reason as to why we have that structure here. My point is that we can be Bible-centered rather than Jesus-centered. Remember the Lord says to the Jews in John's, John's record, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to me that you might have life. So then we are to be Christ-centered, and the whole uh, symbolism of the bread and wine taking symbols of him into our body, this all speaks of how he should be the center, the light of our world, and all these other metaphors which are used. Therefore, we are to be based around him. It's as simple as that. And I therefore suggest that at some point in your life, you should, sooner rather than later, uh, make a study, word by word and verse by verse, of the Gospels. And by that I don't mean read a commentary, I mean just read it through. And make some notes on, uh, on what you're reading, so that you come to know him. Because, you know, later on in Matthew, he's going to say that it's quite possible that at the last day, he will say to, let's say, the, the foolish virgins, I never knew you. We expect him, rather, uh, to say, you never knew me. Uh, but actually, his knowledge of us is related to our knowledge of him. And so then, a study of the Gospels, it seems to me, and by study, I mean a reading and a reflection upon the Gospels, is, it seems to me, absolutely fundamental to, to Christian life. And not to do it once. This should be something that is ongoing in our lives. An ongoing study, all the time, or reflection, whatever word you want to use. Um, so that he is always before us. Because the golden rule is, what would he do? How would he have thought? Because the whole idea is that we have the Spirit of Christ. That he becomes part of, of us. That's the essence of, of the idea of, of Christianity. And how are we to know him? We have been given the gospel record so that we might know him. And when you read in the, in the letters of John how he talks about the word abiding, the word that you heard from the beginning abiding in you, I would interpret that quite simply as him saying, let my gospel, the, the gospel I taught you, the gospel of John in the case of the people he's writing to, his converts, let that abide in you. Keep on churning it over in your mind. Keep on thinking about it, reflecting upon him as the light of your world. So, having said that, let's start there. Now, if, if you were to preach the gospel to somebody, you might well start by saying that, uh, you know, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 8, and Jesus was the descendant of Abraham, and then you could explain who Jesus was, his, his life, his baptism as our example, uh, and then a big focus upon the meaning of his death and resurrection, and then conclude with an appeal to, for baptism. 
And you know what? That's exactly what you've got in the Gospels. Actually, you've got that in John's Gospel as well, if you look for, if you look for it. Uh, but here, particularly in Matthew, you see it absolutely clearly. Actually, the, the first verse of the whole Gospel says that Jesus is the descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham. Exactly where some of us would choose to begin our explanation of, of the Gospel, our explanation of the Lord Jesus, and concluding with the appeal for baptism and for obedience to, to his commandments and practice. So then the gospel is in the gospels. I'm sorry if that sounds obvious, but we're so familiar with these words and ideas that we can forget that. The gospel is in the gospels. People heard these gospels, this teaching of the good news about Jesus, and were baptized. And so, for example, all the later material that you have in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, people were acceptably baptized without knowing or hearing any of that. And for us who are literate and are so familiar maybe with, with the, the text of the New Testament, we can come to assume that everything in the New Testament has got to be fully understood before you can be baptized and have a valid relationship with the Lord. But not so, because as I say, the gospel is in the gospels. The gospel according to Matthew. This is what he thought was important. And what, uh, and under inspiration, of course. So what was in his gospel, as we read it here, his uh, transcript, I would say, of his teaching of the gospel, you see what's important. And you do not find a bullet, a bullet point set of uh, theology. What you find is Jesus. What you find is him and the good news of his kingdom in the sense of his, reign, his rulership, his reigning over the hearts of men and women right here and now. Well, there's parables of the kingdom. Yes, there is the implication that the Lord shall return and establish a kingdom here on earth. But the bottom line of the good news of the kingdom is the life of forgiveness, the life of joy, the life of kindness, the life of long-term patience with people here and now. That's actually the, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is presenting. Well, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, what does this mean? Is this just Matthew's preface to the genealogies, or is this the preface to the whole gospel? Well, this word for book, it's this Greek word biblos, from whence we get Bible. And it seems to suggest, certainly in classical Greek, a formal sort of volume, not just a genealogy. So, what does generation mean? Well, generation, the Greek word uh, there is genesis, genesis. And uh, it's also translated nature twice in the, in the letter of James. So you could argue that this is not, when he says the book of the generation, he's not saying, you know, this is just my little intro to the genealogies. You could say that this is the intro to the entire gospel. And he's saying that this volume, this biblos, this book, is about the nature of Jesus Christ. It's about who he essentially is. And later on we're going to see in a lot of the, the accounts in Matthew that Matthew, I would call him, a, is like a cameraman. That he's zooming up close on Jesus sometimes. You see his body language, how he turns and how he says things, etc. And he departs and they're looking at him. And then he notices somebody and he touches their hand. And there's a lot of emphasis on touch. Uh, so it's as if Matthew is, is like a cameraman. He's like a movie operator and he's shooting a movie. That, that is to, to put in, in sort of visual terms 
what he's doing here with words. So this is the book of the nature, the, of the essence of who Jesus is. And that, for Matthew and for us, is the, the gospel, the essence of the gospel. You know, I lived for years, and I know many others likewise lived for years, thinking that the gospel is uh, a bunch of uh, theological propositions that you've got to get right. I'm not saying that you haven't got to get them right. But I'm saying that the essence of Christian life is Jesus and is a relationship with him, is knowing him and making him known in our lives and, and to others. So then you get a, a related word to this word generation or word translated generation, this word genesis in, uh, in verse 16, where you read there that uh, Mary, of whom was born uh, or, or begotten um, Jesus. And uh, it's, uh, there's a word play there in verse 16. Jacob begat Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. It's all this idea of the, the genesis, the uh, geneo uh, in, in, in Greek. Now, I just pause to make the point there that if the genesis of the Lord Jesus Christ was inside Mary, just in the same way as, for example, Jacob begat Joseph, her husband, there's no, there's no space here for any idea of personal pre-existence. It's just not there uh, at all. And I wonder, actually, if incipiently, in the beginning, uh, there was the beginning of these ideas of pre-existence and so forth starting to come into people's minds way back in those very early times. And, and Matthew's Gospel is maybe geared against those ideas, but I'll leave that with you to think about. Well, of course, he's very uh, limited in what he's saying here. He talks about 42 generations and he skips a whole load of generations. Because in Hebrew thought, you could say that so-and-so was the son of so-and-so when he was their grandson or great-grandson. That was quite okay. So therefore, the information that we have here has been carefully chosen, very carefully chosen. We take verse 3. Judah begat Pharaoh's and Zara of uh, Tamar. And then he goes on to talk about Pharaoh's. Now, why mention the birth of Zara? Seeing there's so many details omitted in this genealogy, why spend a word talking about, ah, oh, yeah, well, he, you know, there was Zara as well? Well, I think it was because Zara was the firstborn. And the point is that God works through the, the weak of this world. God didn't work through the firstborn, it was through the secondborn, and of course in Hebrew culture the firstborn was everything. If you were going to have a, a cool genealogy, it was through a bunch of uh, strong firstborn sons, and God doesn't work like that. And of course who was Tamar? Well, I mean, she, was a, she acted as a prostitute. You remember the, the whole business there with, uh, with Judah. Uh, she, she was bitter, and she acted as a prostitute. Now that is not right, is it? And uh, it's one of the, the themes of this genealogy, that there are all kinds of questionable people and questionable women in the, in the genealogy. Now, 
you, you, you go on in verse 5 to uh, Salmon begat uh, Boaz of, of Rahab. Well, she was a Gentile and she was a sinner. <clears throat> Quite clearly, she was a, a full-blown professional prostitute. By the way, when, when you read there that Salmon, who was in the line of Judah, married uh, Rahab, that gives you a little bit of... Uh, it gives you a, a little bit of a reason for reflection because when the, the spies were sent out the first time, the only two that were faithful were Joshua and Caleb, and they were from the tribes of Ephraim and Judah. And so when two spies were sent out to check out Jericho, I wonder, therefore, if they were from the same two faithful tribes, in which case you would have had princes of the tribes of Ephraim and Judah. And those two guys who went into the whorehouse were princes of Ephraim and Judah, I suggest. And, uh, well, it was a romance, as well as hiding uh, these two guys. I'm not saying that uh, they, like, turned any tricks or anything with her, but who knows. But uh, the, the point is that Judah ended up marrying uh, Rahab. The, the, the prince of Judah, rather, ended up marrying Rahab and having Boaz, etc. So... The whole genealogy of Jesus has all these questionable kind of people and situations in it. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's to encourage us that we cannot blame, we cannot blame our sin, our dysfunction on bad background. I counsel alcoholics quite a bit, and I hear this time and again, you know what, my dad was an alcoholic, my mum drunk, and you know what, my grandma did as well. It's sort of genetic. Well, genes do not uh, specify behavior in that sense. It's true that nurture, of course, can have this uh, effect upon people so that, yes, the same kind of failure repeats in generations. But that's not to say that it is genetic in the sense of unavoidable. And the same argument, I I think, is being uh, sort of debunked here where we're being presented with the Lord Jesus as the perfect Son of God, who never actually sinned. But, look what was in his background. There was all kind of Gentiles, prostitutes, questionable people, people who had done questionable things. And yet that did not stop him, as a genuine human of our nature, being perfect. And so we cannot blame, keep on blaming our background for our human failure. We can't. And this is the challenge of these genealogies. Then you go on verse 6, another example. David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Well, we know all about that and what what happened. And uh, you might notice, if you read in the King James, that when it says, <clears throat> of her that had been the wife of Uriah, her that had been the wife is in italics, which means it's not in the original. And what, it lit- what the original literally says is, David the king begat Solomon of her of Uriah. Now, here you see something. That, that sin of David with Bathsheba is written large, in large letters all over the, uh, the Psalms and you know, Old Testament record, etc., by way of allusion. Um, and yet, God forgave it. Um, his forgiveness of that sin is alluded to by Paul in Romans, by Jesus actually as well, uh, and a number of times in the New Testament. And yet, 
the record of the uh, sin is still there in the Old Testament and it's sort of alluded to here in the genealogy. But I thought God forgave it. God forgave and God does forgive. And yet the record of the sin is still there. But God forgave. But he did not forget. He forgets sin in the sense of uh, not leaving it on your account. So that you, you haven't got to answer for that sin. David hasn't got to answer for that sin of the day of judgment. We have passed out of condemnation. We've had our condemnation in a sense. And we are in that sense in prospect saved and redeemed and secured in Christ. If we abide in him. So what are we to make of this? That God genuinely forgave David. And this is the basis, or one of the Old Testament bases of the, new, of the, the good news, the gospel of forgiveness and of, of imputed righteousness, etc. Paul in Romans is alluding to it, to David's experience, all the way through chapters 1 to 8. So how is it then that God forgives and yet the record still stands? Well, I want to suggest this, that issues relating to forgiveness, I think, are some of the most common problems that we as believers all face. And we struggle with, with forgiveness. We struggle with forgiving people, and we struggle with understanding what forgiveness means. Now, what I think you learn from the example of God's forgiveness is that forgiveness does not necessarily involve forgetting. When you think about it, you cannot actually control your own memory. Your memory is not like a memory on a computer, where you look at a file, say the file about Johnny, who I forgave, and you press a delete button, and you go to your deleted items and you press it again, and it's gone. And you can never get that back, it's gone. Our memory doesn't function like that. We don't have buttons on our head that you can press, and it's gone. You, you, you cannot actually control your own forgiveness of persons. Uh, sorry, your own uh, memory of persons. You can control your forgiveness. So you can forgive someone, but don't think that because the memories keep coming back of what Johnny did, or whatever... That uh, therefore, earlier, well, I obviously haven't really forgiven because I haven't really forgotten. No, uh, the function of memory and the function of forgiveness are two different things, totally different. And the, the, the thing about, oh, yeah, forgive and forget, I mean, this is an urban myth. I mean, that is mythical, and it's very unfortunate that that's been given so much circulation. You, you've got to forgive and forget. You can't control your forgetting. You can't. And the fact that God still remembers, if you like, what David did with uh, Uriah, and it's actually mentioned here, just sort of, again, dragged up, if you like, in this genealogy, just shows that. But God forgave him. No question. This is the basis of, of the gospel, or one of the, uh, let's say, Old Testament kind of types of, of, of the, the gospel. Um, there's no question about that. So don't beat yourself up if you can't forget of course, the fact you can't forget means that the, the memories will st keep coming, which means that forgiveness is not necessarily a one-time, one-off event. It is actually a process. I understand that God can, it seems, scribble a sin and say, right, you know, that's gone, okay, let's play on. 
and that's that. And maybe we can't quite do that to the same extent. <clears throat> so for us, forgiveness is a process, and it's a process, why? Because your memory keeps on bringing up that memory of what was done to you. So, so the circumstances, situations in life, we stimulate you, and, and that's what brings it up again, and so you've got to go through that forgiving again. That's how it is. <clears throat> now, of course, you you read through verse seven <clears throat> about uh, Rehoboam, and uh, Rehoboam begat uh, Abiah. <clears throat> now, Rehoboam was wicked. He begat Abiah, who was wicked. Who begat Asa, who was good, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, who was good. Who begat Jordan, who was wicked, etc. I wonder if that is being put there in the record to just show us <clears throat> that. Whatever your background is, does not necessarily affect you. Because some of those people had good backgrounds and they still sinned. They ended up bad people. Other people had bad backgrounds and they ended up righteous. And I wonder if that's inserted into the genealogies to just make the point that the Lord Jesus had a bad background, but he ended up perfect. And again, encouraging us that we cannot blame any failure of ours on bad background, and certainly not on bad blood, but, uh, you know, genetically it was like this. I came from a mixed up family. Yeah, sure you did, but look at who Jesus came from. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 12, Jeconiah begat Salathiel. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, we're told, write Jeconiah childless. And the critics love to say, oh yeah, but he had kids. And the Bible says he's going to be childless. Well, <clears throat> that's sort of defined a little bit later on. No man of his seed shall prosper, the AV says. So I think when it says that this Jeconiah was written childless, I think what it means is that <clears throat> because his children were not spiritually prosperous, it was as if effectively he was childless. Now, that's quite a challenge, isn't it, to those of us who have children? That if in the end your children are not going to come into God's kingdom, you are in that sense written childless. That uh, <clears throat> we are to raise a godly seed. Now, of course, the, uh, as you see from these genealogies, the final outcome of a human being's life is not only dependent upon their parents. That is one factor. It cannot be that good parents must have kids who are going to end up in God's kingdom, because otherwise it would be kind of unfair, wouldn't it? But it just depends who your mum and dad were, uh, depends what line you came from, and that this, these genealogies are proving that that's, that's nonsense, that good people had bad sons and bad people had good sons um, and, and so forth, and the Lord Jesus remained perfect despite having had a, a bad background. <clears throat> So then, <clears throat> I mentioned that uh, there's 42 generations list listed here, and that's in verse 17. Uh, the three groups of 14, and you wonder why that is. And I, I mentioned that it could simply be because of the uh, need to make this easy to memorize. But there is one reference to 42 in the Old Testament, and as far as I can see, only one. And the reference to 42 is in Numbers 33, 
uh, verse 2, where there are outlined for us in great detail the 42 stopping places of Israel in the wilderness before they reach Canaan. Now, what does that mean? The whole type of Israel in Egypt coming out of slavery, changing masters, no longer serving Pharaoh, but now serving the Lord, going through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud uh, was water that was above them. The water was on both sides of them as they passed through the Red Sea. They were surrounded by water. And uh, the type is very detailed. They come through the water like we are baptized, not into Moses, but into Christ. They don't come immediately to the promised land. They come to the, the wilderness. They are fed by manna. Well, John 6 talks about the manna. And then they're, they're fed by, they're, they're given water from the smitten rock, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, all symbolic of the Lord Jesus. And then Hebrews labors the point that many of them died in the wilderness because they did not believe that they would get through that wilderness journey and they perished in the wilderness, uh, etc. And the rest, the, the promised rest of the promised land is a symbol of the kingdom which shall be given to, to the faithful. So you could say that this whole exodus of Israel from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea into the kingdom uh, through the, uh, the wilderness journey, which is like our lives now, you could say that that is the, the strongest and the most frequently used type of spiritual things, of later things, things to come, uh, that there is. There is no other historical event in the Old Testament, that is alluded to so frequently in later scripture. So, the 42 stopping places must be significant. The 42 stages of God's people coming from Egypt to enter the kingdom. But something seems a bit wrong. Because... The 42 stopping places then would imply that when the 42 generations were up and Jesus appeared, then God's people should have entered the kingdom. But they did not. Now what happened? Well, I would suggest that, of course it was God's ideal plan that Israel should accept their Messiah. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the King of Glory to come, to make a, a way for the glory of the Lord uh, in the wilderness so that he could come to Zion and establish God's kingdom. But Israel would not. And they crucified their king. In the parable, uh, the father sent the servants. They beat one, wounded another, and then he said, Well, I'll send my beloved son. Surely they will respect him. And they didn't. They killed him. So I would say that the whole purpose of God was set up so that in the, the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, that the kingdom of God should have then come. Now, I know it's very difficult to sort of, in words, uh, express something which has got so many variables. But in the simplest terms, I think we could say that it was, of course, God's desire that they should not crucify his son, but that they should have accepted him and given him the fruit from the vineyard, and the kingdom of God should be established again in the parables. All things are ready for the feast. Come into the feast. And they didn't come. Uh, 
even though they'd agreed to. And so then there's this sort of plan B. Ah, go out and get in the uh, the people, the street people, bring them in. What I'm saying is that God's purpose is to some degree open-ended. And why is it open-ended? Because he so respects human free will decisions. Because he's so sensitive to free will decisions. So on the bigger canvas, as it were, of of human destiny and God's history with uh, with humanity. It was his plan that Jesus would have come and established the kingdom. And uh, the whole thing is set up 42 generations to Jesus, even though it wasn't actually 42 generations, it was more than that. But uh, this inspired record of Matthew presents the whole thing as 42 generations. The 42 stopping places that Jesus uh, was to be the entrance into the kingdom. Now, of course, you could say, oh, yeah, maybe it means that sort of potentially we entered the kingdom, etc. Yes, maybe, um, but that is all part of the plan B. The plan A was that his coming was the coming of the kingdom. But Israel would not. They crucified their king. And so there was a plan B, and C, and D, and so forth. Now, that's on the bigger canvas of world history. But if you look at your own life, you see that so much that God will set up a potential and you mess up or you don't, you don't live up to it. And it's not as if goodbye, see you later, end. God keeps on and on working with people. And he says, okay, you didn't want that. I'll try this way. I'll try plan B. And you don't do that, so I'll try C. I'll try plan D. If I was to up myself as to write a autobiography of myself, say my name's Duncan and it begins with a D, I think I would call it Plan D because I, I really feel that it, that's how it's been with me, that I didn't go this way, I didn't go that way, and then finally there was Plan D and I sort of went that way. And also I, I think you, you can see it, I guess, more clearly in the lives of other people. Uh, and sometimes somebody drops the, they drop the button, they, they drop the uh, they drop the possibility God gave them, and we are sort of wheeled in sometimes, I think, to do what really was someone else's job uh, to do. I see that very often with people I baptize. I, I, I get to know them, and I understand they'd had a pre-existing history of, of learning the gospel from somebody, and I don't know, something went wrong within human dysfunction, and I don't know, I, I guess God kind of wheeled me in, plan D, you know, get, get D on the job, you know. Um, you see this all the time. In, in human life. Um, you, you see it in the lives of some who have divorced and remarried multiple times, and each time, I suppose you could say, potentially it might have worked, but it, it didn't for whatever reason. Uh, and so God ke keeps on working and giving an option of going forward, even though it's, it was not the first plan, it was not the ideal, but all the same. Uh, he, he offers those plans and so, so forth. And he did this on the bigger scale. The important thing that we should take from this is that I, on a personal level, will go as fast and as hard as I can for what God has clearly enabled. There were good works prepared from the beginning of the world, Peter says, that we should walk in them. And we're given the talents, and we ought to trade them and do at least something. There's another possibility that I'll... Um, I'll mention uh, in this connection uh, with the, 40, with the uh, 42 generations split up into three lots of 14 
the last 14 generations from the captivity to the time of Christ uh, come to 490 years, which is, of course, the same uh, period that's mentioned in Daniel 9, verse 25, as being the time from uh, Jerusalem's uh, destruction to the final, the final uh, re-establishment of God's kingdom on earth. That, again, didn't happen. But it seems to me that potentially Daniel 9.25, the, the, the 70 weeks, the, the 490, uh, could have come true at the coming of Christ, but it did not. And therefore, language out of the prophecy of the 70 weeks is used later, particularly in the book of Revelation, about events of the last days. So then, God's prophetic word will come true, but not necessarily in the form in which it was originally intended. And I think you see that studying Ezekiel 40-48, to the prophecy of, of the temple. This could have been at Ezekiel's time, but Israel would not. They did not obey what is called in chapter 43 of Ezekiel the law of the house. They didn't build it uh, as God wanted. It's why when they finished it, some people cried and some people clapped their hands for joy. The people who cried, I think, thought, oh, look, this is not the temple that was promised, that, that, that was told us by Ezekiel. This is a little thing. This isn't at all what he, he told us uh, to build. And so it, the essence of the prophecy did not come true in, in a, a literal sort of sense, but it will, in essence, uh, in, in, a, in a spiritual sense. So then, moving on now from the genealogies to verse uh, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was like this. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Well, she was found. Who found her? Who understood that she was pregnant? And I think the answer to that question is, is Joseph. And on that basis, verse 19 because Joseph was a just man and didn't want to make her a public example, he thought about divorcing her quietly. Now, Joseph had a number of options, according to the law of Moses. He could have made a fuss about this. He could have uh, put her through the trial of jealousy, Numbers 5. <clears throat> he could have uh, divorced her. He could have shamed her quite publicly. He could have... Uh, given her a, a bill of divorcement for various things. He could have even uh, burnt her with fire, according to the law. But because he was a just man, he did not do anything, he didn't think of doing anything that could uh, embarrass her. I think there's a lovely uh, connection of ideas. Because he was a just man, because he was obedient and righteous, and uh, etc., therefore... He tried not to publicly shame her. Now, that's beautiful. Because justice and obedience, legalistic obedience, if you like, to God's commands and, and principles, etc., if it's done in the right spirit, as Joseph did, you do not shame the sinner. This is 1 Corinthians 13, lived out in practice. You don't shame. Love does not shame in that sense. It's interesting that he's called a just man because that is exactly the title used a number of times uh, about the Lord Jesus, uh, particularly as he hung on the cross, that this was a righteous man, or the same word, he was a just man. 
And he's later called that just one uh, in his heavenly glory. Acts 22, verse 14, that, Paul says that uh, that just one, Jesus, that just man, had uh, appeal, uh, appeared to him on the, the way to Damascus. First of John 2, verse 1, he is the, the just one right now, and he will be at the day of judgment. So it's interesting that a term that's used about Joseph, who was his foster father, if you like, is used about Jesus in his death and about him now. I notice also that a number of the words and phrases that Mary uses, that's recorded in her use of language, in her song, etc., are also to be found on the lips of Jesus later in his life, and also in his letters that he wrote when he was in heaven, uh, in his heavenly glory, to the, uh, the ecclesias in, in the Lycus Valley. Now, I would say then that that shows that Jesus was a function, to some degree, of Mary and of his uh, foster father, uh, Joseph. The influence that they had upon Jesus lasted throughout his life, lasted to the cross, and lasted eternally, because he still has those characteristics of his earthly parents. That's a, a huge encouragement to any effort that's made, not only to raise children, but to, to help spiritual children to, to grow in Christ. That what they pick up from us, even turns of phrases, they actually may have eternally. Because the spirit shall be saved, 1 Corinthians 5, that the spirit shall be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. That who we essentially are today is who we will eternally be. Because the good news of salvation is a personal salvation, that you will be saved, that I will be saved. And who am I? Who are you? We are the sum of all the experiences and processes that we have been subjected to in, in this life. And the significant processes and influences on many of us were mothers, fathers, those with whom we had to do uh, in, in youth, etc. That sets you up in the way that you shall go. The, the terms and phrases that you picked up in childhood and in youth are the ones that you use all your life. And that was even true, and it is even true, of the Lord Jesus. What a huge influence Mary and Joseph had uh, upon him in that sense. And yet, Jesus, all the same, individuated from them. He had to be his own man, because we all have to be. We all, in one sense, on a surface level, are influenced by parents, but God wants us, and Jesus wants us on a personal level. It's interesting that Joseph of Arimathea, in Luke 23, verse 50, is also described as a just man. And he came and begged for the body, which is typically what a father would do. It was only very close family relatives who had the right to ask for the body of the crucified. And it was given to him. Now, when it comes to Mary, there's something rather similar. That the first person to see Jesus after the resurrection was called Mary. But it wasn't Mary the mother of Jesus, it was Mary Magdalene. It's all a little bit cruel in a sense that 
there was another Joseph and another Mary who ultimately ended up closer to Jesus than Joseph and Mary, his parents. Now, you know what I mean by parents. Joseph is his you know, adopted father, if you like. And I think that's because he taught quite clearly that his spiritual family were more to him than his natural family. And I think that explains the strange thing he says on the cross when he calls his mother in John 19.26, Woman, woman, behold your son. And I believe he's motioning there to, to John, who was standing next to her, saying, Mum, mother, a woman, as he calls her, I'm not your son anymore, he's your son. And he says to John, behold your mother, she's your mother now. Um, he was breaking that human relationship as far as he could. And the fact that it was maybe his last and final struggle before he died maybe shows that the degree to which it was hard for him. So in all that you see an incredible challenge that really spiritual family is to be closer than and is closer than natural family. It's not something we want to hear because the ties that bind are, of course, very strong in, in, in human relationships. But the point is that the new creation and the new family that is in the Lord Jesus, that he himself created and lives by, uh, is stronger than that, far stronger than that, on a totally different level and nature. So verse uh, 20, Joseph is told, don't, be, don't, don't worry about taking unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her, uh, again, uh, Genesis, literally, uh, this word we spoke about earlier, uh, that which is begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's impossible to really think of the Lord personally pre-existing with that kind of language used about him. And fear not. You can understand him fearing, really. Um, but he's being told that his perception, back in verse 18, when he found her with child of the Holy Spirit, he's being told, that's right. Your sense was right. And God will do that. This is how he operates in human life, confirming us in our own uh, sense and in the way that we, we wish to go. Now, he marries her. And who wants to marry a woman who's got pregnant by, let's say, someone else or some somehow she's pregnant? Who wants to do that? I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, most people wouldn't want to do that, especially in a shame-based society like they had in those days. And I think he did that because, as I say, he wanted to shield her from shame. So he really sacrificed his whole life uh, you know, marrying this this woman who was pregnant by someone else, uh, as, you know, as far as the world was concerned, because he loved her, and that love was in that he did not want to shame her. So you see uh, another window here onto the old question, what is love? Love is not wanting to shame. And bearing in mind the connection between shame and condemnation, that is a reflection, really, of the love, uh, uh, the saving love of God for us. So he's told to call him Jesus, verse uh, 21, because he shall save his people from their sins. And yet, John's record seems to emphasize that his mission was to save the world from their sins. So the world, as far as God is concerned, is parallel with 
God's people, the people of Jesus. And that is the, the new dividing line that was drawn between the world and the people of Jesus. And our world, likewise, should be the people of Jesus. Uh, not that, you know, we're basically in the world and we've, we have a sort of a hobby of being involved with the church or denomination and we mix a bit with them, hang out with them and it's all fine. No, our world should be his people. And his, the obedience of Joseph is really emphasized quite a lot in the record. See, verse 25, uh, he called his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. And later on, chapter 2, we're going to see this in verses 20 and 21. Arise and take the child here to Egypt and then back from Egypt. And he arose and did it. But Joseph is a great one, really. He's sort of, he didn't get any recognition at all for what he did in his life, and yet he played this huge role in the, the formation of personality of the Son of God. And yet he got no recognition for it, was likely mocked and, and probably died, I guess, uh, in the background, in the shadows, and yet I believe he'll be great in God's kingdom. <laughs>